0: Welcome to Foresight Friday Roundup, Foresight Health's podcast series for healthcare revolutionaries. Outcomes matter, customers count, and value rules. Hello again, everyone. This is Dave Burda, news editor at Foresight Health. It is Friday, July 8th. That was a long 4th of July weekend to remember for all the wrong reasons. Why don't we celebrate next year with a ban on assault rifles? That would be nice. One thing that is nice is today's episode of the Roundup. We welcome our first guest expert to the show, Gaurav Dayal, who's subbing for Dave Johnson. Gaurav is a doctor, and he's the new CEO of Axia Women's Health. Axia is a large, independent women's specialty medical practice based in New Jersey. When I suggested to Dave that he take his wife somewhere cooler than Chicago to make up for him being out of town during a two-week heat wave, he took me very seriously. He and Terry are on their way to the North Pole for a three-week vacation. I just got this note from Dave. Dear Dave, Julie, and Gora, we're all packed and heading for the Arctic Circle, the land of the midnight sun, polar bears, and long Johns. Should be an adventure. Not sure how I'll survive without healthcare to get me going. Bon voyage, Dave. You know, I was thinking the UP or the boundary waters. As for today's episode, we're going to continue our conversation about how recent rulings by the US Supreme Court are reshaping the healthcare landscape. Joining Gaurav today is our regular resident expert, Julie Merchinson, partner at Transformation Capital. Hi, Gaurav, and hi, Julie. How are you guys doing this morning, Gaurav?
1: I'm doing great, David. It's great uh, catching up with both you and Julie. Greetings from New Jersey. I'm visiting one of our uh, practices.
0: Got it. Thank you. And welcome to the show. Uh, Julie, how are you?
2: I'm good, Gaurav. I'm excited for you and your new role and to have you join us as our expert. And I'm happy to be back in sunny Seattle after three and a half weeks on the East Coast living like a nomad. So, you know, those are the good parts. I'm pissed off about everything that we're talking about today, including Matt myself for what's going on with women's rights. So it's mixed days, but, you know, good and bad.
0: Glad to have you here. Now, before we dig into today's topic, I wanted to ask you about your Fourth of July weekend. I live in Wheaton, which is a western suburb of Chicago. And of course, the parade shooting in Highland Park, a northern suburb of Chicago, dominated the news and affected everyone's planned activities. We didn't go to any firework displays that evening or shoot off any fireworks in the backyard. Just thought it would be disrespectful, although a lot of people in my neighborhood clearly felt otherwise. Girl, where do you live and how did that story play out by you?
1: Yeah, so I was in Florida and Fort Lauderdale for the 4th of July. And look, as you said, I mean, it it was just a horrible day. And I have a bunch of friends in the Chicago area. And I think my text to many of them, and my my sister lives very close to Highland Park. And my text was that um, we really need to stop talking about thoughts and prayers and move to some kind of action. And I don't know, I mean, frankly, it's super frustrating and sad to be in this situation. And unfortunately, while the 4th highlighted because of the date this major problem we're facing as a country this is a weekly problem david you live in chicago you see this i think every week practically now
0: absolutely
1: i am frankly not sure what it's going to take here to be bold and decisive and fix what in my mind is beyond a national epidemic so i'll leave it at that
0: julie how about you how did that parade shooting manifest itself out by you
2: Well, it was another reason to pretty much boycott 4th of July, like so many people I know did, which is sad, honestly. But Washington State is pretty interesting. Everyone and their mother can buy fireworks. So I was mesmerized watching the evening lights up and down the lake. But I have to say, in 50 years, I've never felt sad on 4th of July.
0: Yeah, yeah. It was a uniquely American tragedy on a lot of levels, unfortunately. I guess that's an appropriate segue into the first of today's two topics, and that's the Supreme Court's ruling in a case called Rulon versus U.S., In that case, the Supreme Court ruled 9-0 that two doctors couldn't be charged with a crime unless they knowingly and intentionally prescribed opioids to patients without a valid medical reason to do so. The high court sent the case back to a federal appeals court to reconsider the drug convictions of the two doctors in the light of the high court's decision. Guru, if you're a doctor, what do you think of the court's decision? Did the court set the bar too high to go after doctors who over prescribe prescription drugs? And what's the long-term effect of the decision on physicians prescribing
1: patterns? You know, when I first saw this decision, and obviously it's a disclaimer, I'm, I'm not an expert in constitutional law or the Supreme Court, but I was very surprised by the judgment because it seemed to be reversing what was obviously these two docs who had done a lot of bad things and were very obviously running a pill mill. You know, I think when I looked at the details, one of the docs had written 300,000, that's 300,000 prescriptions, which we know is not humanly possible for one physician to do. And the other was trading like cash payments for drugs and he would take guns as payments. So... This is not a bunch of docs who are like trying to manage people's pain and doing, you know, noble work. These are criminals. I don't understand the nuance here. If I read the judgment, it seems like the Supreme Court has said that good faith prevails, that the doctors were acting good faith. I patently disagree with that. That's a very slippery slope. We can do a lot of bad things and say we were acting under good faith. I don't think running a pill mill and buying literally Maseratis and Ferraris off the backs of addicted Americans is good faith. The implications of this to me are, at least from my non-legal understanding, fairly broad. And I think that we also have to acknowledge that the opioid epidemic is obviously multifactorial. There's a lot of good discussion and fines that have been imposed upon you know, the manufacturers. There's consultants who've been implicated in this. There's pharmacy sales practices that have been implicated. But I think it would be oversimplistic to say that some physicians have not played a very major role. Ultimately, every single one of those opioid prescriptions that were sold or given to folks were written by doctors, perhaps usually appropriately, but sometimes inappropriately. And I think this case, in my mind, is an explicit example of physician bad behavior and using their medical license as drug pushers, basically. It's perplexing to me that the court took this stand. I do think the implications could be widespread. You can do a lot of bad things in the guise of good faith. And I don't know where this ends, because can I now start doing inappropriate procedures? And is that okay? Because in my mind, it was the right thing to do. Can I prescribe unnecessary drugs or withhold important treatment under the guise of good faith? And is that not a prosecutable offense? I don't understand it. You all may know more about it than I do, but I, I was very disturbed by it.
0: Yeah, they must have had a great pharmacy management system, right? <laughs> Thanks, Gaurav. Julie, any questions for Gaurav?
2: Yeah, It feels like the cowboy culture at its best and trying to really abuse the art of the system. Gaurav, I'm curious your thoughts on everything that we have worked on in the same circles around data and information systems and decision support and helping to support you know, the efficiency and effectiveness of medical decisions, physicians decisions. What do you think happens to some of that work because of this decision? Or do you think ultimately there will be no way the Supreme Court could make this kind of decision 100 years from now?
1: So, well, Julie, really, it's a great question. My hope is that this is not the standard going forward. Um, let's use an example. A decision support system tells us that a certain patient requires a certain kind of treatment, let's just say it's cancer, and that there's unambiguous agreement from all sources that there's a certain pathway of best standard of care, which is what you know many decision support systems do and what standard of care implies. If the legal benchmark becomes that I, as a physician, choose to ignore what is accepted as standard of care, Because I'm quote unquote using my good judgment for this patient, I think that just sets us up for a major step backwards and a lot of progress that's been made towards care standardization, best practice implementation, and to your question, using data and analytics to drive better care, because I can potentially override everything by saying, I know better, and it's, it's my judgment. My hope is, and again, uh, my prior disclaimer that I'm not a constitutional law expert by any stretch, that the Supreme Court justices, by the way, who voted unanimously in this case 9-0, are looking at something more intricate than just medical practice. Is it a, is it a state versus a federal reach uh, issue? My hope is that it's something like that because if I read just the clinical aspects of this where they're saying that the doctors were under good faith and despite the fact that they're running pill mills, they were using their medical judgment, that to me just opens up a very, very dangerous precedent across the board, which I think could have ramifications on going backwards on standardization, frankly, even on malpractice. If judgment can be used in saying that poor care was provided because it it was my judgment as a physician, um, I think it's just going to lead to degradation in care and also lowering our standards of care across medical practice.
0: Yeah, a lot of unintended consequences there. Thank you, Kurov. Uh Julie, sticking with our Supreme Court theme and perhaps related to the court's decision in the opioid case, let's talk more about the Dobbs decision that overturned Roe when the draft ruling leaked on May 2nd You told us how you thought the market would respond if that decision came to pass. Well, that decision unfortunately came to pass eight weeks later. Was your speculation correct? How has the market responded, either stronger or weaker than you thought? And how do you see the market response a year from now?
2: Yeah, well, I'm so excited that we're finally talking about this. And when the leak first happened, you know, the first thing I talked about was how Medication abortions represented 54% of abortions nationwide, but only one in five women surveyed knew that it was an option. So I'll say that the DTC drug companies are doing their very best in the last week and a half to change this. A company called Stix, which also sells pregnancy tests, supplements and medication for reproductive health, launched a huge marketing campaign to advertise Restart, which is their morning after pill. So they set up billboards within Five miles of crisis pregnancy centers in states that had readied abortion bans for when Roe v. Wade was overturned. And my favorite billboard is in Missouri. It says, in Missouri, you're allowed to own a baby tiger, just not your reproductive rights. It's time for a restart. So they're being very kitschy and very intentional about location. And listen to this. The company processed 10 times more orders of restart on the Monday after the decision than the Friday of the decision and just over 72% of those purchases made on that Monday included more than one dose and within days sticks began limiting pills to two per order similarly you know big shops like CVS and Walmart had to begin rationing pills uh, you know almost immediately to customers as well and i think what's happening here is people are stockpiling and we're already going to see a massive black market for abortion pills that's for sure you know, another company called Nerx, which merged with uh, 30 Madison earlier this year, dropped the price of its morning after pill called New Day from $20 to $14.99 with the goal, they say, of enabling greater access to those who need it. And, you know, they, among other online companies, are encouraging people to stockpile since the pills have a shelf life of 20 months. So it's pretty interesting out there. Number two, and pretty related, I talked about how virtual health and these DDC drug companies were preparing for this. And it turns out to be overwhelmingly true in companies like Clio, where SJ, the CEO, and her team are working with employers to try to figure out how to create the choice that those employers want for their employees nationwide. Carolyn Witt from TIA is pushing medication abortion to become a standard for women's primary care. Today, I guess about only 1% of abortions occur in primary care settings, but more than 90% are medication abortion eligible. So there's a lot that could be done there. And companies like Hey Jane that I mentioned in May are helping women navigate abortion access in states where it's getting blurry very fast. And then third, we talked about the patchwork of legality around telehealth. And sadly, you know, medication abortion is just the starting point of where this could be, could go dark states with these trigger laws are banning, you know, virtual abortions as well. So it's forcing women to cross lines. It's forcing this woman to use video boxes and strange ways of trying to get those services. And if, if there are other types of services that can be delivered virtually today that also get banned in those states, you start to have states where telehealth is legal for some things and states where telehealth is not legal for those same things. So it becomes confusing. But interestingly, there's an Austria-based group called Aid Access, which offers online consultations and sells pills to all the states. And because it's based overseas, most legal experts say that it'd be difficult for them to be held legally accountable. So they're no doubt seeing a major surge in interest.
0: Wow, that's quite a market reaction. Thanks, Julie. Great analysis. Gaurav, any questions for Julie?
1: Julie, I mean... It's a great overview of what's happening there. What are your thoughts on, frankly, what are workarounds? You know, like you mentioned, say, like telehealth, you mentioned moving this whole to a very direct-to-consumer market. Things can go very wrong. And I know these we're doing this out of duress, but I'm just concerned and I wanted to get your thoughts on what's going to happen even if there's a 0.1, 0.5, 0.8% you know, complication rate of folks who are, frankly, being forced to have to do things on their own.
2: There's so many ways that things can go wrong now for women. And I think a lot of the concern that we hear in the headlines is really about going back to pre-1973 practices and back alleys and, you know, the dark arts. When you think about medication abortions and some of what's available to women today, there's a lot that can go wrong there. And there are anti-abortion groups that are trying to really now push the reversal of medication abortion. So now we're getting into a place where, okay, I can decide I want a medication abortion and then, oops, I changed my mind. I can decide to take something else to try to stop that. We're going to have, you know, massive potential issues for how all that plays out. And I think it's very confusing for uh, women who are living in certain states, what they can and can't do and how to really get proper access in the proper time frame. What's the difference, by the way, between plan B and medication abortion? Do most people even know? So there's a lot of consumer confusion, and I can imagine for physicians and for institutions who have patients who show up in ER or urgent care and have situations where something has gone wrong, liability is super unclear today again. So it very quickly becomes a healthcare issue, even though I think the lines around healthcare and abortion today are you know, thrown up in the sky again.
0: It's crazy. On one hand, you can prescribe anything if you think it was in the best interest of the patient. On the other hand, you can't prescribe anything even if it's in the best interest of the patient. Right. Welcome to healthcare Twenty twenty two.
1: David, just to add to your point. Right. This is a very evolving situation. You know, we operate in states as a women's health company where abortions are completely banned now and some where, you know, it's just an evolving situation. And it's difficult even for the providers to know what's correct on a given day legally. And our advice is that we're going to continue to watch this evolve and come to what's legally correct despite what our personal beliefs are. And it's very challenging. And you raise a good point. You have like this whole paradoxical legal judgment going on where in one case, you know, they're saying the exact opposite, like, oh, it's up to the doctor completely mean um, in this other case it's no, it's not up to the doctor <laughs> it's a rights issue so it's it's very confusing and hopefully over the next you know a few months we get some level of clarity as to what where the path is on this
0: right We'll definitely be revisiting this topic sooner than later. Thanks Gaurav. and thank you, Julie. And now as is tradition on the roundup, I'll ask each of you about other news that caught your attention this week. Julie, what other big healthcare news happened this week that's worth noting and why?
2: Well, I was struck by the M&A that is finally starting to happen in a big way. Rumors that CVS was looking at buying one medical, which is pretty significant. Another article I saw that Cano Health and Humana are in discussions Again, rumors. And, you know, some healthcare stocks are up and I'm not so sure that those are for true performance reasons. So I think we're seeing some interesting blips going on around M&A.
0: Yeah, deals to watch. Thank you. Gaurav, how about you? What other healthcare news blipped on your radar this week?
2: I think
1: I would second Julie's comments on generally that you're seeing interesting bedfellows, if that's the correct term, across the board. And also, this is in the context of an overall significant slowdown, I think, in MA activity, at least outside of the healthcare sector. And of course, with parallel with the stock market tanking. But I think it goes to show that we still are. Probably very early in this ongoing consolidation of both providers, plans with providers, consumer facing companies with traditional healthcare delivery. And where's all this convergence going to come to an end, right? I mean, it's going to be interesting and uh, hopefully it leads to better access and also lower prices. I'm a bit skeptical, frankly, having seen this for a while, but let's see how this plays out.
0: Right. Has vertical integration ever resulted in lower prices for consumers? Right.
1: Not in healthcare, maybe not. not. A, that's,
0: that's for sure. Thanks, Goro. And thank you, Julie. That is all the time we have for today. If you'd like to learn more about the topics we discussed on today's show, please visit our website at foresighthealth.com. And if you follow our show on Apple Podcasts or your favorite streaming service, you'll get notified each time a new episode is available. Don't forget to tell a friend about Foresight Friday Roundup. Subscribe now and don't miss another segment of the best 20 Minutes in healthcare. Thanks for listening. I'm Dave Berta for Foresight Health.